So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with the goal well, of making energy both cheaper but also completely clean. And so with the right innovation, uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty energy. Solar has gained 17 times the rate of our economy. There are 2.6 million jobs in our country in clean energy. The world's biggest energy agencies believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more. We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Hello, and welcome to Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Jeff McMahon. If you tuned into our last episode, you heard former Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz urge the world to pursue some energy technologies that he says we need to develop immediately. All of those had something to do with capturing and either storing or using carbon emissions. Carbon capture and storage or utilization has been hindered by high costs and by a lack of political support that might have otherwise brought down those costs. But there's a project underway in Houston to capture and use carbon dioxide with a new technology that promises to be much cheaper than anything yet proposed. Energy experts at both the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and here at the University of Chicago have referred to this technology as a potential game changer. And with us today is one of the key players, NetPower co-founder Bill Brown. Bill, welcome to Chicago. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. So when we think of carbon capture, traditionally, we tend to think about attaching something to a smokestack or to a power plant before the smokestack. And I understand it that that's the idea of carbon capture and storage that you've disrupted in some way. You've found a cheaper way. Is that right? That's right. Generally, people think of, of that you're cleaning up the flue gas from a power plant, the same way that you're getting rid of the NOx and the SOx from the power plants, and you've got to scrub it, and you've got to scrub it of the CO2. And we decided to go back to basics. Uh, we could either uh, burn uh, uh, natural gas, say, in air, which produces a little bit of water, a little bit of carbon dioxide, and still passes through all that nitrogen. And you've got to somehow chemically pick apart the nitrogen molecules from the CO2 molecules. Otherwise, you'll store just dirty, nitrogen dirty uh, CO2, and you'll have a huge volume of, of nitrogen with some CO2 polluting it. Mm -hmm. And so in order to pick those molecules apart, they have to put some, something like a scrubber onto the back of the system, and that scrubber is going to use a lot of energy and so it's it adds it adds expense and and makes electricity more expensive and so we went back to basics and we said well there's another way of doing this and that is what if we produced electricity in a way that wouldn't have us having to pick apart the nitrogen 
molecules from the CO2 molecules? What if we didn't use air in the combustion, but instead used pure oxygen? Now, I imagine using pure oxygen in combustion has been thought of before. Oh, it's, it's as long as we've known chemistry, we've, and so I would say, I would say this would go back well over you know, a couple hundred years. Right, and then that had a similar problem in that the process, the traditional process for using oxygen instead of air to burn things, it was too expensive, right? That's right. And what people did, they, they know that in order to produce pure oxygen, you've got to get a giant plant that cools the air down and so that at different stages, it takes off liquid nitrogen, liquid oxygen, liquid argon. But those plants are expensive and they use a lot of, a lot of uh, electricity also. And we had to figure out if there's a way that we could do something that allows that energy to be compensated for and not lost into the atmosphere through heat. Could we keep the heat in the system? You're talking about the energy that would be lost by the air separator, right? That's, That's the energy that would be lost by the air separator, but also lost by the, by the power plant itself. Okay. Could we make power in a different way than we were traditionally making power? And, um, and, and in a way that would, would provide the extra energy needed for that air separation unit. Okay. And we figured that out. The problem is, and what we really did was we got rid of steam. Every power plant out there that uses fossil fuel, for the most part, uses steam. Coal plants, you burn coal, it boils some water, the water goes past some turbines, turns the turbines, that steam produces uh, uh, electricity. But 60% of the energy that from the coal goes up into the atmosphere. It's all those clouds that you see billowing out of a coal plant. It's not bad emissions. It's just a bunch of steam. That's heat going into the air, that heat that we couldn't use. For a natural gas power plant, we use natural gas, and a natural gas power plant is a, com is a combination of two types of power plants. One is it's like the engine on a, on a jet airplane. You know, whenever you get on an airplane, you see an engine sitting there, and what happens is the front end of that engine sucks in the air. In the middle of that engine, uh, some fuel is mixed in with that air. It's lit. It goes, it ex expands and explodes, if you will, and drives that uh, jet turbine. Now, that's only part of a normal power plant because coming out of the back of a jet airplane, out of one of those jet engines, is also a lot of heat that's never used. But unlike the steam power plants that reject all that steam heat into the atmosphere, this is actually hot enough that it can actually boil some water. And so then they put another steam cycle on the back of that. Still, the same problem with the steam cycle is that 60% of the, the energy that goes into that little steam uh, engine on the back of a jet engine 60% of that goes up in the atmosphere. And we thought the problem here is the steam. How can, we, how can we use something other than steam to make this work? And this is where we decided to turn the problem, carbon dioxide, 
into the solution. That's intriguing. So you're using carbon dioxide as the medium to transmit the heat instead of using steam. That's right. Now, I've heard it described as supercritical carbon dioxide, which has some of the properties of a liquid and some of the properties of a gas. Can you explain that? Sure. Think of, think of jello. You put a you boil some water and you put gelatin in there and you put it in your refrigerator and it's all liquid and slowly it becomes stiffer and stiffer and stiffer and becomes a solid. A jiggly solid. Well, we're like jello, except in sort of going from liquid to a solid, we're going from gas to a liquid. So think of us as, as slowly at one at one level where we have the characteristics of a gas. But if you cool us down enough, we start becoming this liquid. And it's not like that you see that uh, the condensation of, of, of water on the inside of your windshield in the winter with fog, where your window falls up, fogs up, and that's where that, that cold air is causing the moisture in your breath to condense on that window and turn immediately to liquid. This slowly becomes liquid. So at a particular temperature, it's all gas. Another temperature, it's sort of sloppy gas. And another temperature, it's liquid. And it doesn't freeze out like water. It doesn't do what's called a phase transition. So is there there's some quality about this, this uh, gaseous liquid state that allows you to capture some of this heat that other power plants are are losing into the atmosphere. Is that right? That's right. Think of it this way. The, the energy in water that causes when water freezes on a sidewalk or on a road, whether it creates frost heaves on an on, on a asphalt highway, or whether it creates potholes by, by causing the asphalt or the concrete to break apart, all that that happens with freezing water means that there's a large amount of energy that that water is exerting when it transitions in phase going from liquid to a solid. Mm -hmm. And so generally water is one of these compounds that uses a lot of energy or gives up a lot of energy when it goes through phase transitions. Whereas by getting rid of that clear phase transition with supercritical carbon dioxide, we don't have to waste all that energy. Okay. So you've captured the CO2 that would otherwise go into the atmosphere. And, and you're, you've made that supercritical. And you're using it to capture some of the heat that also might be lost in the process. That's right. What do you do with it next? Well, the... The heat, the extra heat that we capture stays in the system, so we're able to keep heat in the system in ways that a normal steam cycle couldn't. And that's important because we're going to apply that heat to our air separation because that, remember I said that was costly to do. Right. So we captured a lot of heat that normally people didn't capture so we can use that for something else. And the CO2 can actually go into and be used industrially. In the United States, we have been using carbon dioxide for something called enhanced oil recovery. Basically, we backfill oil fields when we remove the oil out of the ground. We put carbon dioxide in its place. 
And so in effect, we sequester the carbon dioxide. And because the carbon dioxide that we sequester is a gas, but by putting, that means you can pressurize a gas and you can put two carbon atoms in the ground for every single carbon atom you take out as oil. And that means that you're actually sequestering carbon every time you pump oil and you're sequestering two times the carbon atoms for every one carbon atom you take out. And that makes our power plants clean and our transportation fuel production cleaner. And we have other uses though for carbon dioxide. You might recall that about 20 years ago there were dry cleaners in this country that were popping up that would use carbon dioxide to dry clean your clothes. You don't see those anymore. But the thought is that carbon dioxide is actually good, has other purposes. And carbon dioxide is actually today used to remove caffeine from coffee beans. So that's how you get decaf. Carbon dioxide can be used in greenhouses to make plants grow faster. In fact, we've seen that in greenhouses in, in, in Holland, uh, carbon dioxide is used to make tulips grow faster and other plants grow faster. We can use carbon dioxide to uh, put into concrete. In fact, there's, there are companies working on carbon dioxide, uh, taking carbon dioxide into concrete they could take a massive amount of carbon dioxide and use it in concrete and, and basically not do you only sequester the carbon dioxide in the concrete, but you also cause it to cure almost instantaneously. So rather than having building a bridge and out of concrete and letting that bridge take three weeks to cure, you could actually cure it almost instantly. You could almost lay a road and drive on it the next day. Now, that's a different type of concrete, and that's a concrete that has to now be written into the specifications of people making highways and the like, mm -hmm. but it's a totally new technology. So these, um, these social uses for carbon dioxide that we have today, uh, some of which you've mentioned, where do they get their carbon dioxide now? Currently, the Carbon dioxide can come from uh, various chemical plants. It can also come from, um, come from the ground. There are big bubbles of carbon dioxide in the ground where they can tap into the ground. It happens to be in areas where that had three things that came together in geologic time. It had volcanic activity and therefore heat. Uh, it had a source of oxygen nitrates or things like that and it had a a a source of carbon like oil or decaying plants and so are you able to offer carbon dioxide into the market at a lower price than those traditional sources absolutely and that is that's how we started out our mission we originally thought that we would put together a process that would allow us to have clean fossil fuels. And that was the only limiting parameter. 
and we realized that the world did not want to pay for clean. And we all recognize that. If, if the world wanted to pay for clean, we'd be clean. And what we then decided to do is we had to make clean cheaper than dirty, or at least the same price as dirty. And with that extra limiting factor, it shoved us into a particular corner. And we had to work on that corner, but finally with, with several breakthroughs and, and just paradigm shifts in thinking, it wasn't scientific breakthroughs, it was just thinking breakthroughs. We realized that we could make a power plant that captures CO2 to be just as inexpensive as a power plant that emits CO2. I want to, I'm glad you brought, up, brought us back to the power plant because there's a couple other features of it that I want to ask you about. One of them is, um, in addition to, to marketing some of that CO2 that you've captured, you're also using it as one of the gases in the burning process, aren't you? And that's where the, the heat comes into play? That's right. Could you explain that just a little bit? Sure. Think of um, your refrigerator. You probably, most people don't recognize what's going on in a refrigerator, but if you think about it, you realize that if the back of your refrigerator is hot and the inside of your refrigerator is cold and you hear a motor running. And at one point we heard something about Freon. We heard Freon was bad and, and that Freon was replaced by something else. But what happens in a refrigerator, we take through the coils that you can see when you pull a refrigerator away from the wall, we inside those coils is a gas and we compress that gas and we to make it hot and we release the compression to make it cold and we compress release compress release so that gas which one time was freon that gas is transferring heat from a hot state to a cold state, hot and cold, hot and cold. And it's moving, what it's doing is it's moving heat from inside your refrigerator to the back of your refrigerator. We use carbon dioxide for the same purpose. In fact, you could actually build a refrigerator using carbon dioxide, where we just transfer the, the heat from inside your refrigerator to the outside of your refrigerator. You could build it with, with carbon dioxide. For us though, we're at a lot higher pressure than a refrigerator. And so for us, carbon dioxide actually has special properties, as I suggested earlier, because it's super critical. It's really efficient at moving heat from the combustion of a turbine to reheating the gases that go inside the turbine. It's really efficient at doing that, and it's efficient at doing that at very high pressures not like your refrigerator, but at very high pressures and high temperatures. And carbon dioxide, thankfully, the byproduct of combustion, thankfully, is useful for moving heat around a system. So the oxygen and the fuel that you're, that you're importing to the combustion chamber before the turbine, that's being heated, and correct? By that's right. Carbon dioxide, and so that makes the whole burning process more efficient. That's right. And we also add carbon dioxide in the front of our 
combustion as well. So we take we take uh, you know small amount of mass, six percent of the mass that goes into the front of our turbine is oxygen and natural gas. Uh, Ninety-four percent of what comes in is carbon dioxide at 720 degrees centigrade. Really hot carbon dioxide. And so we're able to, to put hot gases into the front of a turbine and the hotter the gas the better, the more energy you get out because when you go through a turbine gases cool off and they go down in pressure. So how does the efficiency of your system compare to a traditional natural gas combined cycle? It's comparable to a combined cycle. It's, it's more efficient than an F-class combined cycle. It's a little less efficient than an H-class, but it's sort of in, in that ballpark. Okay. So if it has about the same efficiency, um, what are the comparative costs? Are you going to be able to compete against those plants? Yes, we are. We certainly in places like the UK or Europe where carbon taxes occur, we're especially competitive there already. In places like the United States where we do not have a carbon tax, we will have to rely on the other byproducts initially that we're making from our air separation unit, which includes nitrogen and argon and carbon dioxide. We'll have to rely on the sale of those. But after about 30 plants, we will be equal cost to a normal combined cycle. Um, and there's another intriguing aspect of, of using carbon dioxide as for the heat exchange medium. Do you still need to use water in these plants? No, we actually produce water. And this is something that uh, excites people in, in areas such as Texas and, and the West where water is precious. And certainly in places like the Middle East, uh, we can... Normally, water is important for uh, steam cycles, for what's called makeup water, is that you have to put the water in to boil to cause the steam cycle to work. Right. And because we do not have a steam cycle, we do not have to put water in. We actually produce water from our combustion. Um, yes, and, and uh, one environmental issue with traditional power plants is that they end up with this hot or warm water that they cool partially and then they end up putting back into a river or the ocean at a higher temperature and that creates some environmental problems. So it sounds like you're avoiding those as well. Absolutely. Um, now I know that some people will object to this kind of plant on the grounds that it perpetuates the fossil fuel industry. There's some people who would just as soon see fossil fuels be replaced entirely by renewables um, and other sources of energy uh, even though you're capturing the carbon dioxide and you may be capturing all the pollutants, people also have concerns about the drilling process and um, fracking and some potential effects on aquifers and there have been some health effects documented near fracking pads, things like that. Um, so what, what's your response to that? Well, it's a complex question. Let me take it into at least two parts. One of the reasons that, that um, 
the one thing that we have to agree on is this, is that carbon dioxide is not intrinsically bad. In fact, there's much more carbon dioxide being exchanged from natural processes on, on the earth, on the land, and on the ocean than there is being admitted, emitted into the atmosphere by power plants. So carbon dioxide is a feature of our environment. It's not bad. It's, if we didn't have carbon dioxide, we would have, the world wouldn't work the way it does. The problem that we have is that carbon dioxide is in the wrong place. Now, while it does come, a lot of that carbon dioxide does come from fossil fuels, that doesn't make fossil fuels intrinsically bad. We have to understand that carbon dioxide is in the wrong place. Now, we all come to the world with prejudices. And this particular one, I think we have a prejudice that carbon dioxide is bad, but we don't really fully appreciate how important it is to the way the world works. And, we, and I think that we need to find a way to agree on that carbon dioxide's not intrinsically bad, it's just in the wrong place. Let's face it, water is not intrinsically bad until it turns into a flood. Fire is not intrinsically bad until it burns huge amounts of homes. Things are not intrinsically bad. It's, it's the impact of those things. And so the, the carbon dioxide is something we need to address for its impact, not because it's intrinsically bad, and so therefore not because fossil fuels are intrinsically bad. Now, the other part of your question is fossil fuel production. Agree with that. There's, there are aspects of fossil fuel production that we need to worry about. There are aspects of lithium production for batteries we need to worry about. There are aspects of, of water uh, pollution through heat and other chemicals that we need to worry about. But it does not mean that you cannot solve those problems. And the goal here, I think, has to be that we are wanting to limit the increase in temperature of the earth as quickly and as cheaply and as best we can. And if we do that in a cheap and efficient fashion, more people will get on board. So for the people who are objecting to fossil fuels, my question to them is this. Are you worried about, about a particular product in which you're have become attached to or become hostile to, or are you worried about solving global warming? So uh, we're almost out of time, Bill, but I just, I know you've got a demonstration project underway in Houston. That's right. And um, I know people at uh, quite a few universities are are keeping an eye on it to see what happens when you flip the switch. When are you going to flip the switch? Well, we're flipping various switches right now. We're, <laughs> it's, we're, in, we're in the process of commissioning all of this and, and testing some of the components. And it's like anything new. We'll be flipping switches for several months. And uh, uh, when we're comfortable that we've gotten to the place where we are uh, able to do, in effect, a design freeze on the full-scale plant, 
that's when we'll let the world know that we have now have enough information that will allow us to, to build this on a full-scale basis, and we're going to go out and put something in the ground for 2021. Okay, so you have a date for the full-scale plant in mind. That's right. Do you expect the um, your announcement up on the results of the demonstration project to come this year or next year? It will be this year, but we, our goal is to have a design freeze on that full-scale, you know, to get all the information that we can or we need for that full-scale plant. Um, the operation, let's face it, this, this particular plant that we built down in Houston, um, it has, it's a funny plant. It has, it has a single combustor uh, that converts, that takes natural gas and burns it with oxygen. And the full-scale plant will have 10 of those very same combustors, which is traditional for a natural gas plant, that there are many combustors in a, in a ring on a natural gas and we had the full-scale combustor down in Houston today. The turbine is, is sized for four of those combustors, but we only have one, the turbine down at the demonstration plant. So think of that is we basically built a V8 engine, but have only two, part, two spark plugs. And why only two spark plugs? Because if we had all eight spark plugs, if we had four combustors, we would have to have the rest of the plant be four times bigger. And so we made this in a way that gave us the right amount of information on the right scales that allowed us to build this full commercial plant as quickly as possible. Well, we, we certainly look forward to hearing um, how the demonstration project turns out. And thanks very much for stopping by, Bill. We have to let you go. Um, and those of you out there, make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on EPIC's website at epic.uchicago.edu. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jeff McMahon.